Life is busy, especially if you've got a very important podcast to host. If you want fewer trips to the grocery store and a freezer full of meat, get ButcherBox. They've got incredible deals on high-quality meat and seafood, and it's delivered right to your door. You can customise your ButcherBox plan, and they'll throw in recipes, tips, guides, and hacks. ButcherBox meat is humanely raised. There are no antibiotics or added hormones, so you can choose from grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, crate-free pork, and wild-caught seafood. And shipping is 100% free. Sign up at butcherbox.com underworld and use the code underworld to get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free-for-a-year offer plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. That's butcherbox.com underworld and the code underworld to choose your free-for-a-year offer. Plus, get $20 off your first order. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed. So you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to the Underworld Podcast, where each week we dive into the secret world of organized crime and mafias and crime bosses all over the world. Uh, We just did an episode about Nigeria, specifically the Black Axe, something that I went out to report on. Uh, a couple of years ago. And while I was there, I met Omoyele Shawari, who is a journalist, a human rights activist, a politician. Uh, am I forgetting anything there, Yele? A uh, marathon runner, perhaps? Well, maybe the last one, politician. I don't see myself as a politician. I see myself as a political activist. Um, because the word politician has like really negative connotations in Nigeria. Right, right. Um, but you did run for president in the, the elections last year, right? Um, yes. On a, an anti-corruption ticket. And it has a lot to do with the, uh, the kind of history of the, the cults in a way, right? Yes. Yes, it had a complete, uh, you know, it was interwoven into my history as an activist since I was about 10 years old. Yes. Yeah. Um so, yeah, I first met you, what, a couple of years ago it was in Lagos in Sahara Reporters uh, Office, right. which is the uh, media organization that you've been running from uh, New York for, for several yeah. years now. Since 2006, yes. Right, right, right. And and then I went off all over the country for about three or four weeks and tried to find various people inside the Black Axe, which had various levels of success. Um, but, yeah, then that story came out last year and we've kind of been talking on and off since then um now you had a kind of really intimate knowledge of the cults going back to the sort of early 90s right when you were uh, at a college in in lagos could you just tell us a little bit more about that so when i when i was in college i didn't know much about cultism beyond the paris confrontation which is a form by uh professor Wallace Inca. And you know, I took you to him as well. I think we met him together. Mm, mm. Yeah, he, he's he's pretty he's pretty belligerent about the way that it's become now, right? Since the yeah, days that he yeah. he started everything, yeah. Yeah. 
So when I got into school, uh, the we didn't hear much about them, but they were like we we're hearing rumors about recruitment into courts, but the, there were no courts groups. It was later we found out that their means of recruitment was using social groups. So one of it I remember was a you know like a social group known as uh, ABC Club. So you're coming as ABC Club. The intention is to just have a social feel on campus, which is to go to parties and you know uh, meet hot girls and. Um, so it's and just like a Greek confraternity or a Greek fraternity. Yeah. In the kind so of that thing. was that was the only innovative way of just like bypassing the negativity of being asked to join a court. So, but one day, I think when when year one, there was a whole, you know, reflectarian on campus and posters saying that some group were going to sell that night. It was a court group and there was panic on campus. They're going to sell? Yes, sell means, you know, they're going to have like an initiation in the night. They said it hadn't happened on campus for a long time. Of course, the school authorities issued a statement. This was my first year on campus. Issued a statement saying this is not acceptable. It's not going to happen. Uh, of course, uh, when, during the night, everybody was out to stay clear of uh, the campus. Next day, they, we found on a junction on campus a coffin and some uh, rituals on, on, you know, at the junction, and that was the last we heard about them. But then. In my first year, some guys moved into my room without permission, uh, and turns out that they were court guys. And we fought, and they eventually left. But I didn't know how proliferated they were on campus because we didn't have the usual clashes we're hearing from other campuses. So it wasn't up until my third year on campus that I started to see the infrastructure of courtism. Um, because I would go to certain places and I found guys hanging out in front of Lagoon Front and then certain clubs. So some guys who were students but never went to class and they're always drinking all day long. And we're hearing about fights uh, on campus. Right. And that, that got me interested. Well, so at this point, the cults, like the Black Axe, for example, they've been... Um, Lots of cult groups have been banned on campuses by then, right? This is the early 90s, so... Yes, they've been banned. There was an official ban against, I mean, on them by the federal government and the school authorities. So when you're coming on campus as a freshman, it's one of the information you get. You should never join courts. It's illegal to join courts. It was liable. You were liable to be expelled if you're found in any of these court groups. So I think you made them go underground, deep underground. Mm. But yet, they were successful in recruiting people. Students, yeah. Why? Why was that? Why were they? Why were they so popular with the young guys? Um, I think it was because they didn't want to be identified, and they were supposed to be secret. And driving them on that ground made them to really become very secretive. Mm. But mm. They still, offer the number of students, you know, the mouth-watering offers of connection with powerful people outside. Connection with getting girls and having fun on campus and becoming, you know, uh, successful in life because quite a number of the people were actually so sexual. Yeah, like so. So 
at this point that you've just got to university and you've seen this coffin and a bunch of kind of ritual stuff like hanging out on the side of the street um that must be pretty uh strange thing to see when you just joined up to college and then how did you kind of like join the dots and see that there was this kind of big underground network going on how did you find out that these guys were getting involved in it and i started you know we started researching Mm. especially towards my last year in university and the military role became more pronounced they started getting emboldened in terms of like political interferences on campus they will try to sponsor student union candidates uh, in the student union government or on one occasion they they had a position that was opposed to that of the student union they were like who are these guys like, oh, you can't go out to protest, we'll attack you, kind of thing. And then, of course, we're getting reports from particularly females of rapes, sexual harassment, and, you know, and uh, forceful kind of sexual activity on campus. Uh, and we're getting reports of stabs, especially coming out of the staff quarters right. where right. the university professors had housing. And the kids are there, but what has happened to most of the professors is because they have boys' quarters and they rent them out to these guys because the kids are fairly well to do Nigerians. So many of them actually children of army generals, and you know, in those days, I mean, military uh, top notch people. So, so this is just they were just so repetitive that we had to pay attention to that. So they were they were coming from all parts of society, and they weren't like poor kids looking for a way into society, or um, you know, kids that no, were they, by the way. We found out then that different groups, different groups are like different hangout spots. So like the black arts had their own hangout spots, you know, uh, the Buccaneers, as I remember them, and the AA confraternity in those days, and um, we were the Vikings on campus. I think about five or six of them that I know. You know, and then we started getting underground information about their Capones. Capone means their main leader. Right. Uh, like Al Capone. So the groups. Yeah. So, and at a point, some of them actually came out to me when I became student union leader that, oh, you know, we're the ones who choose student union leaders on this campus. Uh, but in your own case, you were too popular, but you just want to let you know that we exist. So it's kind of a threat. Kind of a threat. It was a sort of threat to say, look, you know, you got to work with us. You got to let us know. Uh, you know, you got to let, we want to let you know that we're existing. Uh, you got to just work with us. So so at the point, I identified clearly the Capone of uh, uh, the Buccaneers. And those ones used to wear yellow. And that's the... A signal. They wear yellow beret, but they weren't wearing yellow on campus. Like, but there's something yellow about their dressing, you know. And the AF wore red, and they wouldn't wear berets, even though in their in their little world they wore those signals. Uh, and then they had a greeting, uh, you know, like some of them when they shake hands, you know, they use the index finger to scratch your palm. Hi. So I got to know of all the things. Yes, a student union. Uh, president, it was somehow so fascinating. Uh, I was leader of student, and I'm finding out about all these secret groups 
on campus and how they operated. So I took time to learn who was where mm. and where you could locate them uh, or who. So when there would be crime on campus, it was, dip- it was easy to find who did what. And so, and so, so at this point, you were the leader of the student union uh, in the University of Lagos. I had become, yeah, I had become. But the time I met, the time that I had, in, in when I saw the Buccaneers was as soon as I was sworn in as student union president. And they, I, I saw them, and they, you know, they, one of their guys came to me to me and said, "Look, we hang out in this place. We're Buccaneers." I was like, "Wow, that's interesting. What do you do?" Like, no, we don't, we're not trying to harm anybody, you know. So, and he told me, like, oh, you know, a former student union leader on campus who was former, who was still around, uh, doing, pretending to be doing uh, his uh, master's degree was one of their leaders. And then he told me sensibly how they were connected with the school authorities because the school authorities used them for balancing, politically speaking against student leaders who are not members of these cult groups. Why were they why were they kicking out against students on campus then? What was the kind of what was the kind of fighting between students and the cults? Ah, because we were opposed to what they were doing, especially issues of rape. And that's the point I said we had a confrontation over we had, we applied a protest and they issued a statement, kind of a cryptic statement that we can't go out because they won't support, they don't support the student union, and of course we went bonkers. Mm. Okay, and yeah. and you mentioned, I think when we last met, you mentioned that you were actually attacked by them, right? In was it nineteen ninety three? So at a point where we knew these, these guys had become a distraction, and we suspected, uh, rightly later we found the evidence to show that that. This government was using them as a social political distraction. We had to go after. We had to be opposed to them openly. Uh, so I was like, what they stood for was against what we stood for, which was a fight for democracy, uh, human rights, human decency, and uh, the dignity of human students. Uh, in this case, as I mentioned to you, we've had several cases of rapes. Uh, sexual assault on campus that were not treated, and then it got to the head when we, when they called for a meeting on campus, and as we were doing surveillance, found one of them with a hand grenade. You found a hand grenade. Yes, yes. And what what happened then? We we dispossessed the guy of the hand grenade, handed him to police, and the next day he was back on campus. Why do you think that was? Why was he not put in jail at that point? I think they, I think the person with the grand grenade was coming in. There was supposed to be a clash between the group that was meeting and the, the group that was opposed to them because there's always a tough war. So this is the defining thing about these groups. You know, wherever, whenever they, they in any campus where they exist, there's always this continuous superiority of war. You know, someone wants to dominate so that the other ones will submit to them and respect them. So, and I think there was an attempt to attack the group that was meeting on campus on that night. And this guy was coming on campus with a hand grenade and we caught him red-handed with it, dispossessed him of the hand grenade before he could uh, remove the pain. Because when he saw that... I mean, when... 
this sounds this is going to sound kind of crazy to to many listeners that someone's just walking around with a hand grenade but did they actually set them off did that kind of stuff happen we do a little research there was newspaper reporting of this particular matter is that in those days newspapers not used to be online yes it was crazy you know he told us when we subdued him that we could all be dead because <laughs> This is a hand grenade. He'd never seen, he's never seen any students group so courageous that we approached him and dispossessed him of the grenade. He said, if you remove the pain, it would have been deadly. And I mean, that puts, in, so- it puts into context the kind of fights that are going on on U.S. college campuses, I guess, right? I think so, but I've never heard of a U.S. college campus where people went to a sorority fight with a hungry man. This, <laughs> this one is a little bit uh, sorority 2.0. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you, you, I remember you describing them to me at the time as kind of lower district gangs, like lower district gangs in the US, right? They're more, they have more in common with your just kind of straight up and down yeah, gangs yeah, than anything they're else. They're more like street gangs, you know, well armed, you know, or fairly armed. And, you know, because I've, you know, I, I mean, I attended a university in the U.S., Columbia University, to be specific, in New York. Never seen the sororities worried. I've seen members of sorority getting drunk, but not with a big knife or gun, mm. you know. Yeah, but I've, I've also lived in Brooklyn, uh, where I've had, I've seen street gangs at war. It wasn't funny. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, that's, the interesting thing about these cults, I guess, is is kind of the the difference between the gangs on campus and off campus and how they kind of work together. And I guess the difference with the Black Axe especially is that it still claims that it's this kind of charitable organization, right? The MBM, and they claim that the two aren't linked and that this is just kind of historical anti-racist freedom fighting group. And I'm guessing that you would uh, see it differently than that. <laughs> well, my experience with uh, the blackers is different. Um, I, I'm, I'm aware that uh, there's a struggle within the movement uh, to separate the militia from the original uh, intention of the group. Uh, but the evidence is, is very evident out there in that there is a complete deviation, a uh, huge degree of deviation from what the original intention was and what they're doing now. Uh, I'll use the description of black-on-black violence that settled on South Africa after the end of apartheid. So um, I don't know where the MBM is doing charitable work today, but I've seen where the MBM, I've seen, you know, after effects of uh, gang wars between the MBM and others in the black arts. And and so something that's quite hard to, to parse apart is like, how these guys on campus that are maybe like dealing drugs and causing fights and, and committing abuses on fellow students, how are they connected to the guys outside the campus gates, the, the politicians and the kind of crooks and the kind of, how, how are those two worlds linked together? Oh, no, you know, I'll tell you the anybody that is willing to do a dirty job or, Oppressing, suppressing either formally or informally, is a darling of the Nigerian political class. Darling <laughs> of the political class. Right. <laughs> you could be like a, um, a lone wolf. If uh-huh. you can kill, and they know you to be like real daring and 
destructive, or you be your phone will be ringing out the hook from big time politicians. So you just have to show that you've got some muscle behind you, and then you can they're going to yeah, come running you for you. Have to tell you just have to show that you can do damage, real damage. Yeah, I think I, I think that Americans might have seen some guys like standing outside the ballots recently in Virginia, and they're like, these guys are holding up democracy. But um, in Nigeria, I mean, historically, in the last sort of 15, 20 years ago, it, it gets really violent, right? It's not just people standing outside the, the voting been, booth. It has been violent. I mean, if we were taking, uh, if there was a museum, not a museum, if there was a barrier ground for victims of court violence, court gang violence in Nigeria, uh, it would probably be as many as the number of people that were killed in one city in Liberia during the war. You know, I'll be saying we would have nothing less than some 1,500 persons buried in Naples if we were to have a cemetery for victims of court gang violence. So the politicians would be the politicians would be kind of paying these guys just to cause chaos, right, around elections and oh, make yeah. sure that you know, people I, were voting uh, for the right guy. You know, you know after like I was uh, done with campus politics, as I call it, or campus student activism, I went on to become a publisher and I did a lot of, I did some focusing on, on the role of the court gangs in political activities found them to be very active in Ogun State years ago under former governor. Where's Ogun State, just for people that might not be? Ogun State is a state next to Lagos. Okay. I found them to be very active uh, in Delta States, in Edo State, in River State, Cross River State, in Akwaibom State. They're still active to today. In fact, the bulk of the Niger Delta militants, I would say bulk, but the considerable, reasonable number of them were former campus gangsters. So these are the militants that are kind of in the Niger Delta that have been yes. um, either trying to, you know, the remnants of the Biafran war, I guess, or um, activists this, against no, the they, oil they, companies there as well. It. It, was, it, was, it was just, was, you know, the militants that started fighting against Nigerian state after they killed Ken Sarawiwa. Right. Most of those guys were former campus, you know, secret cult leaders or uh, operatives. And, and so Edo being the it, state it was around Benin. Progression yeah. For them. And, and yeah, I mean, I, I traveled out to Edo when I was there and spent some time in Benin City. And that's the kind of, I think the NBM calls it their mother temple. And they they speak a lot about the history and the, and the, the, the massacre that the British committed there and how that's kind of... Um, characterized the movement in its early years. Um, but but there's all sorts of different stuff going on in Edo now, right? That's what the, the home of the human trafficking problem, really. Um, so many women yes. being trafficked into sex, and the Black Axe is a part of that, right? Well, you know, what we have heard and found out is that they have uh, gotten involved in this, and I have seen video, uh, I've seen video clips of fights in Italy between uh, these court gangs fighting yeah, for Tom. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, yeah, so so the evidence is clear that uh, some of these guys have uh, really graduated internationally and uh, some of them really involved in the human trafficking rings uh, between Edo State 
and Europe, and particularly Italy. And and you mentioned before, to take it back to your your time as a young man, kind of fighting for rights on the campus. Um, you said that they they grabbed you one day, these guys, right? And they they kind of tortured you. Yeah, they grabbed me, they touched me, they injected me with an unknown chemical substance. I don't, I was a chemical with an unknown substance, and left me for dead. And I ended up in the hospital. What, what was, was the what was the lead up to that? It was because we we're having uh, issues with uh, the operations on campus, and we didn't want to have a campus taken over by cult groups because we felt. It was sponsored. No, we felt we knew it was sponsored by the government and the school authorities to suppress one of the most active student union groups in the camp on, in Nigeria at that time that was fighting for democracy. And um, how does the, you know, how closely now are the politicians uh, linked to cultists still? Some people say that it's not quite as strong a link, but I mean, there's still huge amounts of corruption, right? Well, if anybody tells you Nigerian politicians are not linked with cult gangs, especially the violent cult gangs, um, and I don't know if any cult gangs at this time that is non-violent, I have to tell you. <laughs> right. um, yes. <clears throat> well, it's as good as saying that uh, the Pope is not linked with the Vatican. <laughs> right, right. They're, they're still just all around. They're still doing the same stuff as they've been doing before. Yes, I you know, and now they spread onto the uh, onto the streets. They now have like streets. There are now court gangs on on, on primary school, uh, primary schools and secondary schools. Right. Yeah, I was down in um Oweri on a campus down there, and some guy told me that he'd been threatened back in his home town near Lagos uh, by a kid that was like ten. That was wearing a beret and the yellow outfit and everything, and, and you just couldn't believe that this had sort of. I guess the cults have kind of injected themselves into every part of life, right? They've they've gone for the young kids, and now the old guys are kind of pulling the strings in the country at the top level as well, right? Yes, they're they're, they're doing everything they can to uh, maintain presence everywhere, and, and yeah. now they have they have female passions of. Uh, you know, all the male court groups. Because it used to be particularly chauvinistic uh, uh, system of uh, gangsterism or cultism or secrecy. Because according to African culture, which is sad, women could never be trusted with secrets. Wow. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, yes. So this is not my position, just to make it clear. This is yeah. backward African culture. Right. Uh, so there were not a lot of females uh, that were in those parts. So many groups forbids females from becoming uh, secret courts members. But now there's a black bra. I've had so many uh, female counter versions of each of the deadly courts, and some of them are deadlier than the female versions. Uh, I mean, so it's like really out of control at this point, and. I mean, like I was kind of discovering when I was doing my reporting as well, so much of the, um, so much of the violence and the kind of gangsterism that came out of the confraternities in the sort of late seventies, early eighties was a direct result of the military dictatorship, right? That it was 
it was imposing its power down on the people. Yeah. Exactly. It was military dictatorship, and following up to that is this very rapacious political uh, class that was a, you know, a development from the military. Because when Nigeria returned to democracy in 1999, there was no direct handover of power to a non-military class. The next person was a military person, uh, retired, the Lushegon Basenjo. So that culture of violence and the use of violence to achieve, uh, for, as a means of achieving power was still very prevalent and still prevalent in today. And, yeah, yeah, I mean, Bihari is in now, power now, if right? If you look at so, where we are today, yeah. if you look at where we are today, we still have a former military grandpa who <laughs> is still in power, still using violence and intimidation, harassment, and general muzzling of uh, opposition as a means of uh, achieving compliance. So we're still in that cocoon of militarization. Right. Body poverty in Nigeria. And, and you set up Sahara Reporters in 20, uh, 2006, right? And, and people have called it. I just set up, well, I would say it's 2005, but the publication, the first publication didn't come out until February 2006. Okay. Okay. And, and people have called it Africa's WikiLeaks because, you know, unlike so many outlets in Nigeria, you've really hammered corrupt politicians. You haven't really had the fear to, well, to go know, after people. They like, the way I like to call it is that, um, is an equal, is an equal opportunity offender <laughs> to the corrupt and the powerful, uh, and the oppressive class. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I guess that brings us up to date with your current run in politics. So could you give me a little rundown? I mean, I, I, I don't know if I've mentioned this already on the interview, but you're actually calling me from house arrest in Abuja, the capital, right? Yeah, well, the right way to describe it is probably never seen in a dictionary of uh, any form of arrest. But I mean, a city arrest. City I'm arrest. Confined to, yeah, I'm confined to Abuja. The federal capital of thieves. It's called FCT. Uh, the federal, federal capital territory is what they call it, but I call it federal capital of thieves. But that's my own um, appellation for <laughs> Abuja. So yeah. that's where I'm talking to you from. Yeah. And and how long have you been in Abuja for? I've been here since uh, December 24th, 2019. It's uh, almost uh, nine months now. In a few days. And um, yeah, tell me a little bit about how that came about and, and how you decided to run uh, for the presidency last year? Well, you know, I ran for presidency in 2018 and uh, the election happened, or the non-election or selection happened in 2019. And after I found out that uh, they weren't really interested in free and fair elections, I started organizing young people across the country for a confrontation, peaceful confrontation against the states in the Nigerian states and uh, President Muhammad Buhari. Uh, so we scheduled a peaceful protest for August 5th, 2019. I came from the U.S. in July to organize it and mobilize for it. On August the 3rd, uh, 2019, they invaded my hotel room in the middle of the night and uh, got me arrested and flown to Abuja, where I am now, uh, detained me for about five months and uh, charged me to court for a variety of crimes, uh, about seven counts, 
One of it was that uh, I was trying to overthrow the government and that I insulted the president. In addition to laughable um, charge that I was uh, engaging in uh, money laundering for transferring money from one account, one of my accounts to the other. Right, right, and and so um, <clears throat> excuse me. But by the way, they dropped two of the charges. They, they dropped, dropped all the charges. charges of money. Yeah, they dropped the money laundering charges, and uh, I'm in charge, and also that of insulting the president. So I'm left with a uh, treasonable felon. Uh, which is the insinuation that I was trying to overthrow the government with placards. Since you were kind of bundled into a van and taken up to the Capitol, um, you've had people back in New Jersey led by your wife who've been protesting on your behalf there. Um, you've had Amal Clooney has, has kind of uh, joined the call to to um, set you free for, from the from the Nigerian government. Have you had any... Yeah. kind of um, come back from any of that yet? No, yeah. The, the Nigerian government is, uh, unfortunately, doesn't respect public opinion or international pressure as such. But I must thank them. They're, all of their efforts led to my initial release into the city. I, I, I used to be in uh, solitary confinement uh, for 23 hours every day until I was released uh, December 24th to come out of the city. Uh, but I've been confined to the city at my day. They're holding on to my passport. So they seized my passport. And they froze all my accounts in Nigeria. And I've made it impossible for me to get out of uh, the city of Abuja to visit my mom, who's been sick, by the way. Uh, and all allowed me to go see my wife and kids in New Jersey. Um, that's awful. I'm sorry, man. That's really, really terrible. And... What I mean, have you had no conversations with the government at all during this time? Uh no. I, I, you know, my lawyers are the ones who are responsible for speaking on my behalf, and the government has not reached out to us in a way that uh, shows that they're remorseful for doing for this atrocious uh, attack on my liberty. I was um I was struck when I was reporting the story about um the black axe actually that the kind of level of hate that i was getting back from people that i would just be reaching out to on the phone or or anything really meeting in bars um i received so many death threats by people uh people trying to follow me around everywhere i think you had mentioned to wow. me that it would be a really hard one to report but I, is this just yeah. what happens in nigeria i mean everything's so secretive it seems it is uh because, as you really had uh, mentioned, the Black Ass is uh, it's one of the oldest. Uh, I think it's, it's the oldest was the uh, Paris Confraternity led by Professor Wally Shonika, and the Black Ass was uh, followed as a rival in those days. And they had, to my historical knowledge, had inviable plans to liberate humanity, particularly fighting to end the apartheid and discrimination on the continent of Africa and elsewhere. I think when this uh, was uh, diverted in a very negative way, it became an albatross on the neck of probably the guys who started it and who are now influential. To be associated with such a disgraceful conduct was uh, something very hard to swallow. I, that's, that's my suspicion, and that's probably why you were followed. I was, uh, I was followed for years. I was threatened 
even after I was attacked, they threatened me and um, for several years. Uh, and to today, I still get harassed by some of these cold guys that uh, they have confrontation with on campus. Yeah, I still, I'm amazed how many people's identities I had to change in that story just to be able to like, you know, do it without them getting killed. Because absolutely everyone is always getting threatened by by one of these guys, right? I mean, it's it's so, so pervasive in Nigeria. Um, how much, I mean, how much of the fight against corruption on the political level is a, a fight against the cults in Nigeria? The two kind of like an interchangeable <laughs> thing at this time? No, no, I don't think, uh, I mean, most likely the corrupt guys have, you know, uh, cultist relationships. They, um, not, they're not, there's no, and I don't see any defined fight against cultism that has anything to do with corruption. No. Right. And, the, so and the, most ele- the, electoral to find, com- the electoral commission yeah. that, that, that's supposed to go after this kind of stuff, the ballot stuffing and the violence, right? They, they're kind of, from what I understand, they're not the most independent of groups in the country anyway. No, no. And the, the word independent is uh, a misnomer. It's not independent about the National Electoral Commission. Uh, they they work for the highest bidders and those in power. Uh, I mean, the contradiction really is that when you have the president of a country appointing the head of the electoral commission, you should already expect where you want his loyalty to be. You should understand that he'll probably support the president who elected or who appointed him into office. So I don't know why people expect something different from a... Nigerian electoral commissions or electoral bodies. That's yeah. they were designed ab initio from the beginning to uh, for the piper to dictate the tune. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I guess that America's going for it right now with its Supreme Court pick, right? And so many people are up in arms about whether the next Supreme Court pick is going to be um, a conservative along the lines of Trump. But it's like you guys created this system so who's surprised that who's in power gets to decide on kind of what justice looks like as well and i guess that's a similar thing to what you're describing isn't it yes it's the same system it's the same system um we got a long way to go here it's the reason why um after 2019 election i switched or we switched on my seven number of young people lots of them switched over to uh, revolution now. Uh, we don't think uh, the existing reform templates can take Nigeria to any enviable, enviable heights. It's not possible. Right, right. So it's only from, from the ground up that people can really um, has to fight be back. It's overhaul. It has to be a complete overhaul. Okay. Um, well, yeah, thanks, Omiyeli. Um I guess... I'm really sorry about your predicament as it stands, but I'm hoping that something can sort out soon. Do you have any hopes that anyone's going to be changing your situation in the near future? You know what? Um, I'll just say to you, Kassara, Sarah, whatever <laughs> you do, do. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's not for us to say, man. Well, it's. Um, I hope that I hope the best for you, and um, yeah, thanks ever so much for speaking to me. Thank you so much. Revolution now.
Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply at LifeMD.com. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications through LifeMD? LifeMD is now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. Probably the easiest thing I've ever done. The medication comes in the mail and it's very easy to use. I've been able to live my normal lifestyle and I've lost 20 pounds already and I've never felt better. It changed my life. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at TryLifeMD.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com.